Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I'm the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Uh, today, um, slightly different. Um, we do talk about Bitcoin. We do, right towards the end. But I wanted to bring on an old uh, colleague and uh, friend and, and client of mine, actually, um, to talk about what's going on in the oil markets, which obviously uh, broke down last week, and um, the effects that that's going to have on us and other markets and the, the ripple effects that go throughout um, the whole uh, financial spectrum. Um, Henri has over 25 years experience, as you will learn, and some some unique insights to what's going on in the oil industry and um, around the world and how it all works. You know, it'll, he'll he'll unravel for you, you know, what is a um, deliverable oil contract? What does that actually mean? And what happened on that day that it went down to minus 37? And why did it go down to minus 37? And how does he see it all unraveling? And 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 coming back at some stage. I hope you enjoy it. I hope it gives you more of a rounded picture of why um, oil markets and oil prices are so important. So, um, yeah, we'll get into it. And um, I, I just want to give uh, the usual quick shout out Real Vision, $1, unlocks 30 days of their content. Go and check it out. This is macro stuff. You can go and um, learn more about that. Um, and after this this show, you know, perhaps you, you can head over there and, um, find a few more interviews uh, of dislike. And um, yeah, it, people are still reaching out and um, asking about, um, you know, my, my past and, you know, because uh, I post obviously a lot about uh, homeschooling, alternative education, how to leave the rat race, what, you know, remote work, digital nomadery. I did write a book about that um, when I left uh, my career in Singapore in 2014. I wrote the book around 2000, end of 2017. So that's called Choose Life. You can go and find that if you're interested. And um, yep, as ever, thank you guys so much for listening and uh, being part of this journey. Hope you enjoy the show. Thank you. Hey guys, welcome to today's show. Um, a different guest today. Um, I'm welcoming on an old friend and colleague, uh, Henri Jean, and um, he has been in in the markets for a, a long time. I don't want to give away your age yet, Henri. Welcome to the show. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Now, um, Lauren is here to ask the first question, as usual. It's usually a Bitcoin question, but this time it's more of a, um, a personal question. Um, what did it feel like working with my dad? Ah, that's an interesting question. Uh, well, you know, your dad used to work upstairs in the uh, broker's room, and I used to work downstairs. Uh, but, uh, but we actually connected pretty quickly, and... Uh, we seem to get along very well. So I would always either walk up to his room to consult with him on what was going on in the market, or he would do the same walking down to my office uh, to see what was going on. So uh, it was, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, it, it seemed like we clicked right from the beginning in the office. We saw, we saw basically the trading environment uh, the same way. Okay, that's a good answer. It is a very nice answer. Thank you. 
And um, did you have any more questions? Mm-hmm. When did you meet with my dad? I, I don't remember exactly. Uh, it was, uh, I had a very, uh, you know, it was a very horizontal uh, organization. So I cannot remember exactly, honestly. Okay. And, uh, so I think that, uh, uh, you know, as I said, it, it, it almost, you know, came naturally, right? So, uh, I think it was like mid two thousand thirteen. If I if I if I cast my memory back, I think it was around mid two thousand thirteen. So you would have been around two. Yeah, it was like June June two thousand thirteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. That's All right. It, yeah. Cool. Well, we're gonna get on with the. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. I can't keep this. <laughs> you can. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank Bye. you. Thank you. Uh, thank you um, very much, mate. And um, yeah, thanks for the kind words. Oh, you're most welcome. Um, yeah, and I echo the sentiment. I, I remember it well. And um, I think you and I definitely, well, certainly in the organization we were working in at the time, were um, we had more experience under our belt and we could um, talk on a, a much higher level about um, what was going on in the markets than most of the colleagues and indeed customers around us (laughs) (laughs) and even the clients but uh yeah we won't go too far into that but um the reason i wanted to to bring you on to the show Henri, was because of um you know what's been going on in the oil markets um obviously this is a bitcoin show but it's it's necessary i think for people to understand why people look at oil so closely I mean, why are macro traders looking at oil? But someone like Raul Powell, for example, is always talking about oil. And um, the reason is oil basically affects every other market, every other sector, whether we realize it or not. Um, could you talk a little bit about the other sectors that oil is is touching and why the price of oil is so important in your view? Well, I'm, you know, my... Uh... I, I'm uh, mostly involved in uh, biofuels, but obviously I'm a I'm a component to the uh, oil and gas industry, and uh, so I have to monitor the oil and gas industry very carefully. Uh, uh, biofuels is not the enemy in a way; we are basically buying time for the for the oil industry. Um, but it it is a massive business. Uh, I have to say that you know over the over the years since I've been involved. Uh, you know, I, I cannot even express how uh, immense this business is and, and how it basically supports almost everything that happens worldwide. And, um, and this is why it is uh, so important economically, geopolitically, politically. Uh, and, uh, uh, you, know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not sure how we are going to get off oil, uh, if that is ever possible, uh, I think, uh, it will, it will, uh, uh, require, uh, you know, uh, technology that I cannot even imagine right now, or I think almost anyone can, uh, can imagine right now because it is so massive. Uh, you know, so, so I think, uh, you know, I cannot really, uh, to, to put it in a, in another way, if you look at a, a two million barrel vessel, is what they call a, a VLCC, which is a very large crude carrier, uh, which is about you know ten football fields long, 
carrying two million barrels, and it and to put it into perspective, the world uses about a hundred million barrels per day. Uh, so, so I think <laughs> you know uh, it's it's really difficult for people, I think, to understand, uh, and this is the reason why this business is so uh, important to uh, to the world. Yeah. And for somebody that, that's sitting at home and thinking, well, you know, how's the price of oil going to affect equities? How does it affect foreign exchange? How does it affect the price of gold? How does it affect the price of food? It touches everything. Like absolutely, absolutely everything. So that is absolutely why macro investors are always looking at the price of oil and following very, very closely what's going on. So with that said, um, let's um, let's talk about you know how how you got into financial markets in the first place and um, kind of like the uh, the training ground way back when where you uh, you first started your career um, and what that was doing. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I basically came to the energy. I, I'm a trained grain trader, uh, so professionally, you know, I did my MBA, then I worked. I went to work for a, uh, a quite a famous uh, grain trading company called Continental Grain Company. Uh, you know, I started at the uh, basically at the elevator level and basically moved my way up to, uh, you know, from trading trucks to trading uh, Panamax vessels. Uh, uh, I was first trained in the Midwest and then I uh, basically moved up uh, the ladder all the way to New York and then to Geneva. So via Chicago and uh, um so that was, that is my basic training, and um, and I it's only in 2006 uh, uh, I had basic I continued to basically pursue the the value chain in the grain. Uh, so I went into you know I, I traded basically processed products and um, you know uh, derivatives of those processed products, etc. So I, I moved up the value chain, and then I went. In about 2005, 2006, I saw the changes coming, and I started trading um, ethanol and biodiesel, and that's how I came to Singapore. Uh, uh, I uh, ended up uh, uh, working for a Brazilian company, uh, first trading ethanol, uh, and um, and then uh, I slowly moved into biodiesel as a uh, as a complementary product. Uh, and then I was poached by a famous uh, energy company called Trafigura, uh, who, who actually introduced me to the real energy business. Uh, you know, I would say that, uh, you know, I almost had an epiphany when I went into the energy business from the biofuels that I had just encountered a few years before. So even though I had traded ethanol and I had traded uh, biodiesel, I was still trading those products uh, more like agricultural products, not so much like energy products. And then when I moved to Trafigura in 2008, then I started trading those as energy products. And and with that, I also was introduced to all the different uh, strategy hedging uh, strategies that many of the um, energy companies use. Uh, which is, you know, quite uh, sophisticated. Uh, I would say more sophisticated than what you 
find in the agricultural sector, uh, where basically, uh, and the difference is that in the agriculture in the agricultural sector, when people hedge, and you know, remember, you know, everything is hedge in the agricultural sector. Uh, they, it, it's very traditional hedging, where basically they do not use. The, the hedge is not dynamic, uh, or they don't manage the hedges like they do in the energy sector, and and that was the big difference. And so when I went into the energy sector, I, I you know I was introduced to all these new products, and some of the new products also being introduced at the same time on the biofuel side, and you know so it was really uh, an epiphany, and and then um, uh, I continued to uh, develop. Uh, both personally and professionally in the biofuel sector, uh, and, but more and more away from ethanol and more and more into biodiesel. Uh, and I was embedded in the uh, distillate groups of, uh, of these companies uh, of, uh, at Trafigora. So basically, I worked very closely with the gas oil or diesel traders. Um, and... Um, and I am still in this business today with another oil and gas company, and I am uh, uh, trading. Uh, I'm still trading by diesel, and the business is now, you know, ten times larger worldwide than it was in 2006. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> it marches on. And yeah. you were at you were at your desk. Well, no, probably a little bit later. But you watched the whole thing unfold last week when um, when the price of oil went negative for probably the first time in your career, or ever. And um, we can probably get to that uh, a little bit later on. But yes, I want to I want to ask about um, the good old days, standing shoulder to shoulder with people in the pits. And for those um, that listening that might not understand what the pits are, this is um, if you see like trading places, for example, the old film, Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd, where they're standing shoulder to shoulder with all the different traders in the pits. That's where you really started. Could you give us like, um, that those days must have been crazy. Yeah, I mean, I first, I, I actually first started in, uh, in, in the Minneapolis Grain Exchange, uh, where it was a, a traditional physical or cash market, where basically on one side of the exchange, you had tables with the the grain, the actual grain, the wheat or the corn or, the, you know, of all the rail cars that were in the delivery markets. And then on the other side of the exchange, you had the pits where you traded those, you traded the futures that were based on these, on this cash market, you know. So um, that was my, uh, what I call early training uh, before I went to Chicago. And when I went to Chicago, I, I wasn't so much in the pits then because I had been promoted. So I was more giving the orders to the people who were in the pits. And um, uh, but it was uh, uh, Chicago at the time. The Chicago Board of Trade did not have a cash market like the Minneapolis Grain Exchange. Um, and by the way, you know this is all change. Of course, now it's uh, all electronic, so there is no there's essentially no more uh, a traditional cash market. Uh, like there used to be in the old days. Uh, you know, that was uh, 1985, 86, 87 uh, in Chicago. Already we were starting to move to electronic. Uh, and uh, by the time I was in uh, New York, which was basically the uh, late 80s, uh, the, the market had uh, already significantly changed. Um, Particularly after the 1987 
financial collapse. And I, you know, I, I guess I, I was actually uh, telling somebody how many, how many crises I've actually, you know, gone through in my career. And it was like, I think, I think I'm up to the sixth one. Uh, so <laughs> that I've seen 198, but I have to say that the, the first one that I saw, which was the 1987 October, uh, equity crash was the most scary one. Uh, so, uh, uh, I don't want to, to, uh, uh, you know, that, I, I don't want to minimize it. It was very scary as a young trader to see what happened, uh, in 1987. And, um, like, the, what what was the the atmosphere like in the pits when you've got these guys? Because you've got people there that are representing like um, the actual farms. You've got people that are representing actual uh, Trade, firms, traders, yeah. And you've got people, and you've got people there that are what's deemed like a local, right? You could just literally turn up and buy your way into the pit and just speculate. Correct. Yeah, you could just basically buy a seat. Uh, on the exchange, uh, and there were locals, people who basically arbitraged the the, the trades between traders and uh, between you know between commercials, speculators. Uh, the orders, you know, the orders came from everywhere, right? There's some some orders came by phone. Uh, some you know some or, some orders came came by telex from overseas uh, back in those days. Uh, it was. Uh, you know, it's a, it was it was very international, uh, honestly speaking. So in the pit, you could see orders coming from everywhere in the world. Uh, to be honest, uh, even in the in Minneapolis Grain Exchange, uh, where we traded uh, a specific wheat contract, it, it was a very uh, interesting business. But but everything was related to, to the cash or physical market, you know. So even though we were, you know, there was a lot of what I call physical pushing, you know, on the closing or on the opening, pretty much the 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 the, tr- the trading day was pretty boring outside of the opening and the closing, to be very honest. Uh, so, you know, there was always a rush for the orders on the opening, a rush, but pretty much the rest of the day was like, you know, sitting at your desk, uh, Either recapping the trades that you had done at the opening, or uh, collecting orders that are coming through. You know, in, in our case, we were trading for for a major company, so we were you know uh, trying to uh, to see what orders came from from where, which office, and you know who was you know and and how those hedges were being uh, reported back and and so on. So there was a lot of administrative you know paper administrative work involved. That's what I do remember uh, very vividly, and uh, I, I I don't think it was as glamorous as as it uh, it may seem. Uh, you know, definitely electronics is much is, is definitely much better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, no physical flight, no physical yeah. fights on the floor. Although yes. I have seen a few of those in in broken yeah, in trading rooms in my times. So. <laughs> yeah, it does happen. I mean, it does happen. It, it happened mostly in Chicago. In Minneapolis, it was a very much everybody knew each other, and it was a, such a small uh, circle of people that uh, it, you know it rarely happened. But uh, I think that the most of the uh, you know the legendary type fights did, did happen on the Chicago border trade, and uh, where all the you know all the pits were, and, you know, and there, and there were the agricultural pits, and then there were you know financial pits, which are also very different in terms of. Uh, players and also attitude. 
Yeah, for sure. Right, let's get on to um, to oil and, and what happened last week. And if we can kind of like back it up, um, you know, what what in your mind, what what led to this? What was like the the two to three months prior? And um, if you could talk us through, like in in as easy a term and simple terms as possible, like what it's like to put on one of these trades and what you're actually doing or you should be doing. Well, I think that everybody knew that demand was collapsing because of the coronavirus. And so so there was basically um, a rush to to sell the what, what you know to sell the structure, which means that uh, to sell the structure, you have to sell May and 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 buy June. Um, and so essentially what you're pushing the, the front contract, and essentially raising the back contract. So what that what happens is that the Cotango uh, became larger and larger, right? So, so meaning that the market had to pay the traders to store the crude, and 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 this was a process. So it started happening since the first of March, and uh, you know, so all, all the all of these traders uh, basically. You know, and it takes two to 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 it takes two to uh, to make a trade, and therefore there were people who were basically uh, thinking, "Hey, you know, the May the May contract is so cheap, I should buy it, right? Because, you know, surely oil cannot go lower." Um, uh, so, uh, and and I think that there were probably two or three moments where this happened, where some people covered some of their shorts, and then. And bought back, and 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 this happened in the month of March, and then as we got closer to the uh, expiration of the May contract, uh, which, uh, if I remember correct, was uh, April twenty first, and uh, uh, it a lot of what I call speculative or less experienced traders uh, started covering their shorts, which had been quite profitable. So. By selling the May and buying the June, they basically had made a lot of money because the the May fell more than the June, and therefore they made money on the spread. But they had to buy it back at some stage as they get closer to the delivery. And I think that a lot of these traders forgot uh, that WTI is a deliverable contract. They forgot or they didn't know. Some didn't know. Uh, and so when they covered the spread, they bought the May and sold the June to make, to, 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 to take their profit. And they did that very close to, to the delivery. And therefore some people somehow got long. And, uh, in fact, there were quite a few, uh, uh, people who ended up being long the May very, very close to expiration somewhere high net worth individuals, some were commercial companies, um, not so many small speculators because uh, most of the people who have accounts that are less than $5 million are usually kicked out before we go into the delivery mechanism. And so they ended up basically long the futures of May and um, they basically uh, we're trying, and, and, and the reason why they wanted to be long the futures of May, because they say, well, it cannot go any lower, you know, like at close to zero, I want to own it, right? And I mean, that's a normal uh, 
uh, reaction. You know, uh, it had gone from, you know, close to 50 down to zero. I mean, so uh, it, you cannot blame the, these traders. And, and, and uh, they, um, but because it was a deliverable contract, uh, they had to find a home for this oil, right? Because others, more experienced uh, traders who understand the physical movement and the deliverable aspect of the contract uh, in Cushing, Oklahoma, were basically saying, well, you know, yes, we have storage, but not for you. We have storage for us, but not for you. So what happened is the day before delivery, a lot of these uh, traders and uh, started calling uh, the storage facilities to find out how they could actually, you know, uh, find storage for this oil. Um, so the worst part for any trader is to find yourself long a deliverable contract when you don't have storage, because the storage of the deliverable contract is is only in a specific place. It's in Cushing, Oklahoma. It's in those tanks. It can only be pumped in, or it can be, you know, you can do a, a tank transfer from one tank to another. Or you can do a title transfer inside the tank with another party. So, so the conditions under which you can actually take delivery are very restrictive. Um, and similarly, uh, give product or sell product. So it creates it creates a kind of a uh, the convergence essentially of the futures and the physical market creates a lot of. Uh, problems, uh, especially in a very illiquid situation like we experience on the 21st of April. And therefore, uh, this led to the contract uh, trading into the negatives because once these long uh, traders found out that there were no, there was no storage, no place to, to take this oil, they basically are, had to take title in the tank or they had to find a place to put the, the, the oil. And in Cushing, you had absolutely uh, plenty of space, but the space was in the hands of very strong shoulders and very experienced traders who basically took advantage of the situation and made it extremely costly for anyone to get space in Cushing, Oklahoma. That's essentially what happened. So it's not a storage issue, which was part of like um, some some. Parts of the media were saying, you know, there's no storage, tanks are full. Um, that, that's not the real story here. Not true. Uh, in fact, uh, today I was even checking that on, on you know, a week before, uh, the tanks were about 70% full in Cushing. So there was plenty of space. So not a problem. <laughs> you know, it was purely. So if you look at it this way, the negative the negative uh, value of, of WTI that actually occurred is really the valuation for the storage, you know, or the penalty for not having it. Either way, or you know, you want to look at it, you know. So this is the uh, the real the real the reason why WTI traded negative was because there was there were people who basically said, "No, I'm not going to give you storage. I'm going to save it for my own needs." Because remember, not everybody is in WTI. So WTI has very specific conditions where you must store or you must take the product. Uh, whereas other physical traders, you know, have ways to take the product from many, you know, into 
but 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 this Cushing storage uh, location is a is a, is a highly liquid uh, uh, position. But in in the, this time of coronavirus, everybody is looking for storage, and the reason why everybody is looking for storage is because the Cotango is so large. So you you are more than paying for your storage costs, and therefore. Everybody wants to own and store. Right. Um, but let's just go ahead. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Long, meaning that, and, and, the, and the, the reason is very simple. It's very cheap in May, but it's, it's much more expensive in, uh, you know, in the, in the month of uh, June and July. You know, so to give you an idea, uh, I'll, I'll just uh, uh, give you some of the numbers. Uh, right now, if you, if you buy crude at at seventeen dollars, uh, the price of crude for December is twenty eight dollars, right? So, so the market pays you ten dollars a barrel to keep it stored. And is that what you mean uh, for those listeners uh, by a Cotango? Yeah, that's that way. That is what Cotango means. So Cotango means that the market pays you to store your goods because there's no demand, and 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 the reason why this happens. Is because everybody is selling the front contract, the, the the the, you know, it's a little bit like pushing on a string, you know. So it, it, everybody is selling the May because they don't they they don't have demand for May. So all the all the, you know, all the customers or all the you know the the downstream is trying to sell the May because there's no demand, uh, whereas the commercials or the traders who are more on the upstream side, meaning the production side, they they're happy to store because the market is actually paying for it. And let's just clear up um, the acronym WTI for the listeners that um, might yeah. be scratching their heads. It's West Texas Intermediate, you know. So it's a very specific grade of oil that is uh, specific to the Texas area, and you know it has a, you know, so th- so not a, you know you can't just deliver oil in Cushing that uh, is, you know, that comes from Saudi Arabia, you have to meet the specs, right? So it must be West Texas intermediate specifications. So the, the, the exchange has actually specific rules. And when you deliver it, you must meet those specs. If you do not meet those specs, then your contract will be rejected by the buyer, right? So, so it's a, it's a, this convergence of the futures contract and the physical uh, market is is a is kind of a, is a very uh, harsh wake up call because all of a sudden you're no longer holding a piece of paper you're holding an actual physical barrel of oil you know uh, and therefore you you either you have to find a home for it or you have to deliver it against maybe the you know you maybe you want to store it until the next month which most of these people we're trying to do so most of the people that were still sitting with the may what they wanted to do is store the 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 oil you know so that they can keep it all the way to june uh and make uh you know they would have made i mean right now the that market meaning they would have made a close uh, to uh i'm looking at it so yeah they would have made basically almost uh uh five dollars a barrel you know, so cost of cost of storing is maybe a dollar a barrel. You know, so most of it is profit or margin. Right. So, and this is when 
when mainstream media are talking about the price of oil, this is the one they follow. It's not the oil that we particularly think about for putting in our cars or heating our homes. It's this WTI that gets delivered at Cushing in Oklahoma. Yeah, that's the crude. That's WTI. But remember, it's not Brent. Okay, so there is another contract called Brent, which is which is used mostly internationally. So WTI is mostly used in the United States. So so the fracking industry is the one who actually uses WTI the most. So in the last few years, as the United States has ramped up its production and became uh, you know, a leading producer, uh, the volumes or the liquidity of WTI has, has increased dramatically. Uh, but it is still a, a shadow of what is going on in Brent, which then represents the entire world's uh, oil. So Brent is the, it is the reference for international oil, so for Europe, uh, Saudi, Asia, and WTI is the reference for U.S. oil. Okay, right. We got lots to get to. So, um, so there's two. There's two crude oil contract in the world. The the Brent and it's a different specifications for the Brent. It's traded out of London, and WTI is traded uh, out of New York. So the one we saw break down last week was the WTI. Correct. What happened to Brent? Brent is still trading. It doesn't. It doesn't uh, expire the same way. Uh, and the delivery mechanism uh, for Brent is completely different. So it's uh, it, it is not uh, so uh, cowboyish as WTI. <laughs> Cowboys in Texas. Who'd have thought? Yeah. <laughs> so um, and, and Brent can be delivered internationally, right? That there are ports all over the world that take Brent. Yeah, meaning that Brent has a similar mechanism also, and uh, but but it's not the same. It, it has multiple points of delivery. It's different. It's a different uh, system. Um, so it's uh, it's not as restrictive as WTI. WTI is like it centers on Cushing on one delivery point, massive delivery point. Okay, so when this was going down in the U.S. last week. This was happening at close. Yeah, you're in Singapore. You're asleep. Yeah. What the hell did you do when you woke up and saw minus thirty seven previous day close WTI? Yeah, I mean it. It really we were hedged against Brent, so it didn't really affect us. Gas, you know. It, I think it just created uh, a lot more uh, issues for uh, the banking world uh, in the sense that all of a sudden people realized that zero is not finite anymore um <laughs> so so i think i think that that realization was a bit uh more concerning for the bankers because all of a sudden they were looking at all the hedges that all oil traders care, carry on their books and they're thinking oh my god these hedges can go beyond zero and i think that that is what has changed since uh, that day. Immediately, I think after that happened, pretty much every bank in the world has basically, you know, uh, asked all the, all of their customers, uh, traders to, uh, review their edging positions. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, and that, you know, we, we've done it and, you know, everybody has, has had to reassess, um, their hedges, uh, you know, uh, for obvious reasons. So, uh, 
it's a very uh, and it's not just the futures that are affected it's also the options that get affected as well so there's a large amount of options that are traded as well so it's uh, it affects you know a lot of uh, derivatives as well and um, you know so it's uh, you know this this uh, this state of illiquidity is something that just has never happened in uh, the oil sector and you know in, fi- in 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 50 years it's never happened never and I, I just don't feel that enough noise is being made about this I, I you know we, we see if I turn on CNBC they'll be like oh oil's back at like thir- uh, 13 15 dollars you know oh we're all back to normal right it's like guys like you don't understand the ripple effects of what's out there we're four days into this completely uncharted territory that nobody knows what's going on. And you and I were discussing the other day before we set this podcast call up, like the dominoes that could start falling over are incredible. Yeah. And, and if you want to... I, I think that uh, uh, it's, it's, you know, uh, it's a rather uh, unnerving for, you know, almost all the players um, because, uh, you know, we, we've basically gone to... Uh, practically a zero demand situation. I don't think anyone could have ever imagined that. I mean, we, we talked about uh, when peak oil or when peak oil, you know, happened or was going to happen. Uh, you know, we've, we, you know, we talked about substitution of in the transportation sector to different uh, modes of energy and so on. But we never never imagined that you know one day we could have zero demand for oil and 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 the process is not over because obviously with this coronavirus you can imagine there's refineries who produce product i mean just imagine you're a refiner and you're producing product and you're buying crude and you're you're producing this product and you're producing and when you produce product you produce gasoline diesel you know all sorts of different co-products and and you have to sell them. They have to move. So if you don't have enough storage at your refinery, you can't buy crude anymore because you're going to have to stop the refinery because your storage tanks are not moving and you are you have to stop the refinery, which is a ext- very costly exercise. So this is the reason why the refineries are moving their product onto vessels and storing the product onto vessel to avoid closing the refineries. And um, uh, so... So this, you know, this uh, stoppage of uh, of demand. I mean, it's uh, is is something that you know no one has ever seen or imagined. You know, so and and I I think that um, you know it's pretty much uh, over. Uh, but you know, it's a it's a new factor that people have to take into account as part of the risk of trading these products. And for those listening, you know, like the, the basic fundamentals, like think of the last time you went out and drove your car, right? There's there's people sitting out there that haven't driven their car for five weeks and multiply that by hundreds of millions. How many of you have not taken a flight because or had to cancel flights because nobody's moving around the world? Um, it, it just you know, supermarket deliveries and things like that. It's just such like the basic fundamentals just completely dropped out, gone, nothing. And here we are with all this oil being pumped still out of the ground. Yeah, and you can you cannot stop a well from producing, and it's uh, you know there's there's a 
you know, I, I think that uh, after the last OPEC meeting, uh, remember the cuts have not even, you know, uh, taken place yet because they only start being made in, you know, so so let, let, let's imagine here, Saudi Arabia has actually increased production and the, all of the new cuts that we are trading, uh, you know, that we, we are now trading only start in May, which we are not even in May yet. And, and, uh, and, the, and these cuts are massive. I mean, we're talking about close to 20 million barrels across uh, three major producers in the world: Russia, Saudi, and uh, and the United and the United States. And uh, so, the the uh, uh, I'm moving because uh, I think somebody's uh, trying out their motorcycle all of a sudden as we are talking <laughs> about oil. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah. So, so there's engineering challenges in cutting production. So you, when you go to a well, you know, and, and you have pipelines directly from the well to the refineries, or, or you know, it's it's not easy to just cut production. You know, you have to make. You, there are engineering challenges, particularly in Russia, um, where a lot of the wells basically go directly to the pipeline. Uh, so uh, Saudi Arabia has exactly the same. In the United States, it's a little bit different because, um, you know, they, they have like pumping stations so they can cut off pumping stations uh, in the fracking world. But similarly for a platform, uh, there are enormous costs associated with cutting production. And, um, uh, you, know, you know, when you think about what we, what we are going to do in May in terms of cutting production, we are going to cut production at the same time as we're going to tell people, hey, you are now going to be released, and therefore uh, you might be out of confinement. And as we discussed uh, the other day, I think many of these people are going to jump into their cars, uh, which they haven't driven in five weeks. So you're expecting a big spike in demand as soon as um, we're, we're back out? Yes. I imagine that we are going to have uh, almost as brutal or and violent exit out of this as we had uh, going into it. Wow. Okay. Um, but let's get a, on to that's you know that's a trading that's a trading opinion, right? So, uh, but but I, I think that we can expect that. Uh, so because it's uh, uh, you know it's it's clear to many that you know a lot of people are going to jump into their cars, right? Uh, because they find people are going to avoid public transportation, and everybody will favor uh, personal cars. Uh, and therefore, uh, this will this could overwhelm the system. Very interesting for all you traders out there. <laughs> very, very interesting. <laughs> Let's talk about some of these ripple effects again and what you're seeing happen in Singapore because you've got some concerns about. Uh, there's a couple of companies there that have gone um, bankrupt um, over the last two to three months. Is that fair to say? Correct. And yeah. like the whole. Um, banking industry what that is facing in singapore at the moment if like trade finances is breaking down yes that is a uh, this is a something that is uh, specific to singapore but singapore has always been uh, you know a major oil uh, refinery center in asia i think we have we are very much like uh, the houston of the east uh, right in the, on the malacca strait there's five uh, I think five crackers operating here in Singapore. Um, uh, 
probably the country with the highest uh, carbon footprint in the world, you know, compared to its size. Uh, and the reason for that is because uh, this is a massive um, refueling stop for vessels. I mean, uh, that's as simple as that. Uh, and what has happened over the last three months, and I will speak uh, about only one of the companies, uh, which is the the one that basically went bankrupt recently, was a major bunkering uh, company, uh, family-owned Singaporean uh, company uh, called Hing Leong, uh, that essentially went bankrupt. And they operated the vessels, the storage facilities, uh, and uh, uh, found themselves... Uh, short of cash uh, because of margin calls as the market went down. And uh, they were always uh, naturally long in this market because they had to satisfy their customer base and uh, essentially uh, have racked up uh, close to $5 billion, I think four, $4 billion of, uh, uh, of losses and uh, just simply could no longer uh, meet their obligations. So... Um, you know, this is the second largest, this is a second bankruptcy in Singapore since January this year. There was another bankruptcy earlier this year, in, but more of a palm oil uh, trading company uh, called AgriTrade. Uh, and, uh, uh, but it was also uh, close to a billion dollars in uh, losses. And therefore, um, the bankers in uh, who have gotten bitten, uh, not to play on the words, you know, say once bitten, <laughs> you know, so it, they, they have, they have been bitten twice this year. So all the bankers in Singapore, uh, are basically shutting down their trade finance operation, you know, uh, and, uh, because of the massive losses that they have taken in these two massive bankruptcies this year. And, um, this is uh, not good news, uh, for Singapore. Uh, because uh, Singapore relies upon uh, these trade finance banks. Um, and it's not good news for the commodity traders who established themselves here in Singapore uh, because the financing is available. And that has knock-on effects all the way down through um, foreign exchange, for example, where you know if, if you do not have these trade, tra like the trade finance deals could be in the tens, hundreds of millions per company. Per bank. Yeah, I think that HSBC uh, risk with uh, Hing Yong is as is eight hundred million dollars. So uh, these are mm. massive, uh, massive risks. Um, so uh, yes, I mean the impact is going to be felt, you know, over the next uh, six months, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, it is definitely not good news for Singapore. Uh, so uh, this is uh, a very uh, uh, you know, a major blow to, uh, you know, to being set up as a commodity trader in Singapore. Uh, so we will see how, you know, how the government will make it more attractive because they will have to do something to make it more attractive uh, for uh, trade finance banks and also for commodity traders to, to stay in Singapore. Uh, but I think that they will have to do something uh, in this regard, because otherwise, I think that over the next six to 12 months, I think you're going to see a major retrenchment. And could you talk a little bit about, um, we, we mentioned this the other day as well, uh, the drawdown that we could li likely expect, um, 
in other markets, equity or gold, for example, if if these trades are, are still on um, going into June, and if the same kind of thing happens again, the margin calls. You told me like margin calls have now been that they've changed like the percentage you're allowed to. Could you talk about that because that seems like pretty aggressive? Yeah, most of the exchanges now have uh, you know when when you when you basically buy these contracts uh, that that are obviously now everybody knows are highly risky since they can go uh, below zero, uh, which is something that no one had ever uh, imagined before. So obviously all of the initial margin requirements have been increased uh, on all energy products, not just crude oil, but every single product uh, by close to 30%. So this is a major liquidity uh, tax on trading companies uh, you know, on financial institutions that carry those hedges for the trading companies. So it's a, it's a, it's quite a, um, an imposition. Um, so, uh, you know, for sure this will squeeze a lot of smaller product players out of the market, uh, as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, they, this is going to create a liquidity issue, uh, for sure. Um, and, um, you know, uh, remember, the volatility is not gone. In fact, uh, on I was looking uh, at uh, implied volatility for options on uh, gas oil or diesel uh, this last Friday, and it was about 163% for the uh, front month contract. So uh, to, to put that into perspective for your listeners, what that means is that there is a hundred and sixty-three percent chance that you will get the direction wrong. <laughs> and that's just but people are still going and and trading against this. Yes. Like yes. and buy like and buying these contracts with yeah. knowledge that the implied volatility is at, okay, I've got a hundred and sixty three percent chance I'm gonna be wrong. Seems legit. Let's put some money yeah. on that. Like, who does that? <laughs> I don't know. Well, some people sell the, the, that volatility, uh, you know, and I think that you have to be quite, uh, uh, you know, uh, quite a cowboy to do that because, I mean, but in, in this environment, this is the kind of implied volatility that we are seeing. And, you know, some, uh, some of it, uh, you know, it goes down, further down you go. I mean, there were some people, for example, uh, I heard on Friday that we're buying options on $40 oil for December 2023. Uh, I, I, yeah, 2023. Uh, so, uh, you know, there is always people that look for opportunities, right? Uh, so implied volatility for that far out is actually quite low. Uh, so people basically are buying uh, those options, uh, for 40 or for, you know, basically they're buying calls thinking that the oil will go back up, um, uh, pretty far out. Uh, and, uh, I think December, 2023 is, uh, pretty far out. Uh, so, uh, plenty of time to get there. That's for sure. Uh, but, uh, implied volatility in all of the markets is equally high. And, uh, you know, so, uh, as I said before, I think the getting out of the current situation is going to be, uh, you know, brutal and violent, uh, you know, that, that's the only way I can put it. Uh, we're not going to get out of the mess that we've put ourselves in, uh, without having an exit that is going to be equally, 
uh, difficult. And how confident are you in the like uh, market trading ability, the players in the market to navigate these seas that you that you expect to come? Like th- these are going to be very choppy times. Absolutely. I mean, there's people that will be, uh, you know, that will, you know, when you're trading that kind of volatility, uh, if you if you get it right, you, you know, I don't attribute that to trading skills. I attribute that purely to luck. <laughs> so, um, and I, I can only say that because it's just impossible to trade uh, in these in this type of environment. But I think that uh, most of the people who are playing uh, into these markets right now um, are going to have uh, lots of difficulty when the market goes back up. And and the reason why uh, I'm saying this is because when a market goes down and you have hedges, uh, your hedges actually make money because you usually you're long the physical and you sell the hedges. So as the market drops, you're making money. But when the market goes back up, uh, those hedges actually lose money. Uh, so it's much more difficult to operate as a, as a trading company when the market goes back up uh, uh, with hedges, uh, especially if it, it moves up uh, you know, suddenly and violently. Uh, and, and that's what I would expect. And so I think that you know, there is going to be uh, some damage when we get out of this uh, as much as when we got into it. And if we pair that with what you said about like overnight now on all existing contracts, um, the margin, but the, the exchanges have changed, like the margin requirements by 30%. If people have these positions on and the violence in the market comes as you expect, margin calls are going to be like they're, they're going to be raining in. They're, they're just going to be coming from left, right, and center. And these companies, what are they going to have to do to cover that margin, which they were not expecting? Because 30% is a huge shift, a huge shift for their their underlying um, position. What do yeah. they do to cover those margins? Where can they well, turn? Yeah, well, if they don't meet the margins, what happens is that the, the, the broker and the clearer will basically kick them out of their hedges. Uh, so... Uh, you know, if the market continues to go up, that's fine. But very often, the trade finance banks, especially uh, after what has happened in the last uh, two months, uh, are going to insist upon that all traders are fully hedged. Uh, and therefore, I don't see, uh, you know, I you know I do see th- this kind of situation where basically for people are going to become. Uh, strap for liquidity uh, as we get out of this mess. We could we could double the price of crude uh, very quickly. Hmm. And if someone's the wrong side of that and they get a margin call and they're a hedge fund and they want to meet the requirements of the margin call, they're going to have to sell some equity or gold or uh, Bitcoin or whatever it is that they're holding, which is going to have these ripple effects into the other markets, which we started the conversation about. Do you see more bankruptcies on the horizon? Malinvestment, you know, hiding trades, somebody out there is sitting on something that they just don't understand? I think, I think so. I think that there's more in the, in the trading. I think that we are going to see in the trading sector a lot more, uh, uh, a lot more bankruptcies or uh, reorganizations, um, uh, 
I think the damage is so great. I mean, just imagine the damage that we that has been created in the Texas uh, fracking industry. I saw on Friday uh, the amount of uh, rigs that were closed down. I mean, uh, uh, imagine the cost that uh, that people have actually engaged into to close to close down wells in in you know you know in Russia, Saudi Arabia, uh, oil platforms at sea. Most most of the North Sea platforms are closed down. I mean, I think that we just haven't we we haven't run into uh, you know nobody has actually. Uh, done the math on all of this uh, damage, uh, and and I think that when it's fully computed, for sure, a lot of players are going to uh, get out of the business, and th- either through bankruptcy or through a reorganization. Yes. So it's not a very it's not a very optimistic picture, but uh, uh, you know, but we will survive, you know, and so I will have a. Uh, gone through another crisis in my career, uh, <laughs> so and it's definitely one that I didn't expect. No, for sure, for sure, and um, you know, like everything you're saying just makes sense to me. And um, you know, I don't want to be like this kind of um, negative guy on markets and what's going to happen, but I, I just. The, the, the way like the amount of money that's being printed um you know um the rigged basically rigged equity markets um what's going on in the biggest market in the world oil as we've just discussed uh the ripple effects that's going to have which people don't understand it, it, it is coming um that's i mean to bring this all back around to bitcoin which i should do is another one of the reasons that i choose to hedge outside of our current financial system with bitcoin um and i know um do, do you want to speak about bitcoin at all Henri? um like uh, your knowledge yeah, about I'm, it and- I'm, yeah i'm i'm a sort of uh a, a amateur investor in uh, bitcoin uh, i i basically buy it regularly and uh, as an investment uh also because uh you know i view it at I view it like I think most of the people who are in the Bitcoin world, which is a, it's an asymmetric uh, hedge essentially. Uh, so uh, you you uh, you know uh, most people are invested in stocks or have money in the bank and so on. But uh, you know uh, you know when when a major crisis happens, you know I uh, it, you know it could be that you you may not be able to get to your money in the bank. Or you could not sell your stock, or that you might be frozen out of that. Um, uh, so those are things that I think that uh, uh, you know that obviously are you know quite uh, extreme. But uh, you know I think that Bitcoin is uh, you know Bitcoins in general, or uh, are are or uh, any type of uh, of the, these currencies are are definitely going to become part of any worldwide portfolio of anyone uh, you know so there's some oil traders i know that in the world that are already uh, trading uh, some amounts uh, of oil in bitcoin uh, so it's not you know it's not completely uh, you know there there's people who who basically prefer to to trade in bitcoin uh, of, of course uh, so uh, and there are many different reasons for that right so uh uh, you know, there's definitely, uh, 
a sense uh, that you know people who invest in Bitcoin are trying to hide something. Uh, but uh, I, I, you know, I, I'm of the belief. You know, I believe that uh, uh, it's uh, it's a perfectly good hedge to your holdings, and uh, therefore, I intend to continue to uh, invest in Bitcoins. Yeah, well said. Well, um, thanks so much for your time, Henri, and um, explaining everything as clearly as you have. Uh, and I hope uh, the listeners will now have like a wider understanding of, of what's going on in the oil markets, um, where you see them playing out. Um, are you on Twitter? Are you happy for people to uh, to follow you and reach out? Oh, yeah, I do. I'm, uh, I'm quite active in uh, on Twitter about renewables. And uh, so no problem. It's at Renewables Work. It's, uh, that's my Twitter handle. Excellent. Thank you very much. And do you have any um, last closing comments for anybody listening out there? Yeah, I don't want to be you know, overly uh, pessimistic in my uh, overview. You know? So I think that people don't you – know, I hope people don't uh, uh, take it that way. Uh, you know, I think that we will survive this crisis like, as we've survived many others. You know, it just means that we have to be ever more vigilant of everything around us. Uh, that's, that would be my last words. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time today and uh, have a great weekend. All right. You too. Ron. Take care. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. Well, guys, thank you for listening and thank you again to uh, Henri for, for coming on the show and sharing all of his knowledge and what he's seen play out in the markets over the last week and where he thinks they're going. Obviously, we, um, you know, he, he wanted to leave it on an optimistic note, which is, uh, which is brilliant because he's right. We will get out of it. It's, uh, you know, um, like five years from now, we'll be looking back and this will just be another crisis that passed. Um, but, you know, it's, it's nice to have the information of what's coming, what he sees coming, and what um, many of us believe is coming as well. And to make the final case for why we're buying Bitcoin and why we're believing in Bitcoin and the reason that, um, you know, it, this asymmetrical hedge, as he, was, uh, as he so eloquently put it, uh, you know, if that helps anybody out there understand exactly why we should be looking at this thing closer and help um some some family and friend members uh, family members and friends understand why you know it's so important to us or if you're learning about it for the first time thanks for listening i hope this has helped um kind of crystallize your thoughts and give you a broader kind of macro look at um how financial markets around the world are are you know very much controlled um by this this one huge market right at the center of everything which is the um you know the energy complex and it, almost everything goes downstream from that it, it's it's crazy and when you actually take a closer look under the hood of it and start learning about how it works and the uh, the ins and outs of it um you know it, it all becomes kind of obvious really you know everything we use every day is is powered by oil all of the products that we have in our homes have you know they've got oil in them somewhere or the only way they've got to you is by use of of oil. Um, yeah, it's 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 nuts, and this is why the these markets are so important. And that's why you know last week when 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 the price of WTI um, went and closed down at like minus thirty seven dollars, we're not out of that. That that was that you know that was just the start of this unraveling that we're going to see over the next um, four to eight weeks into everything else and. The longer 
countries stay closed down, the the, the bigger effect it's going to have. Um, hmm. Lots to think about, lots to chew on. Uh, I hope this one really um, piqued your interest. Uh, you know, reach out to to Henry, Honoree. Um, you'll find him at uh, at Renewable Works, as he said on Twitter. Uh, he's pretty active on there, updating people on the markets, what's going on, his thoughts, his views. Um, again, thanks to uh, Henri for coming on and sharing all of his knowledge. Reach out to me on Twitter anytime at Princey1976. Share the episode with anybody that you think might find this this interesting. You know, um, I'm sure you've got uh, one or two friends that are talking about financial markets at some point. This this will definitely definitely pique their interest, and it might put them um, on the Bitcoin path. You never know. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for liking. Everything helps. <laughs> <laughs>